This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Whether you're in person or whether you're watching online, welcome to Church of the Harvest. It is a privilege to, to have you with us uh, this morning. Uh, we, we're just a family of Christ followers. The Lord brought us together, and we've just recognized that we're stronger together than we are individually. So we have chosen to link arms and fulfill God's purposes in the earth together. And uh, we, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We love God, and because we love God, we love people, and, and, we, and we serve the world. If you're part of the Harvest family, what is the vision? What is our vision? To make, grow, and equip followers of Jesus to fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And we do that through what? Community, discipleship, and outreach. Guys, we have been, we've been discussing our identity, our responsibility as the body of Christ, as believers, those who have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And guys, things are challenging in the world today. Is there anybody disagrees with that? <laughs> things are a little challenging today. But here's the reality. We are not of this world we have been given the word of God, which never changes. Our father is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So regardless of what happens, we don't have to be moved. We don't have to be shaken. And so uh, a few weeks ago, we started, a few weeks ago, nine weeks ago, we started a study of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And we know when this begins that Paul is in prison in Rome, right? And the Holy Spirit moves on his heart to write this letter to this church that he helped found, this church that he helped start uh, in the city of Ephesus. And we know that in this, he's, he's, not, he's not addressing problems. Some of the letters he wrote, he's addressing issues within the church. He's, he's not when he writes to Ephesus. They're doing good. They're moving forward. They're, they love the Lord. They're seeking after him. But what he does, he begins to teach them, and he begins to teach them and to, to reinforce in their lives who they are in Christ. And in that, he does that in the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters, because there's six in all, in the last three chapters, he begins to give practical application of that truth in their lives. And and how many of you know it's good to receive knowledge, it's good to receive truth, but we got to know how to apply that. And so that's what Paul goes into uh, starting in verse 4. So we we finished the uh, the end of chapter 3 last week. And as we talked about week one, we, re- we have received the input of the word, re- revealing who we are in Christ. And have you know, that's some good teaching Paul did there. It could have ended, the book could have ended at the end of chapter three, and it had been some good stuff. But as we talked about week one, we have got to know how to apply that. And we, we need wisdom to apply all that we've learned. And, and that's what Paul does. Starting in chapter 4, he helps us out and begins to impart wisdom into us and how to impart everything he taught in chapters 1 through 3 to our everyday life and what this, what this begins to look like in, uh, in the world. And so we start in chapter 4 today. And, and this is where he begins to give us practical truth. And so what's really happened up to this point is he has given us He's given us positional truth. What is our position in the body of Christ? We are one with him. We are in Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places, right? He's taught us who we are. But now we need the, the truth for today, the temporal truth, how, that, how it is applied to our everyday life. And so temporal truth is simply the application of the positional truth that we've already been given. So for instance... He tells us that because of the finished work of Jesus, because of our surrender to his lordship, he says, you are now righteous. Okay, so I am righteous. Well, 
What we, we understand that as our positional truth. That's who I am. I am righteous. But now because I know that, I need to apply it. That means I can live a righteous life in the world today. Does that make sense? He taught us that we are holy. Well, I learned that I'm holy. Okay, because I am holy, I can be holy in this life. He taught us because I am sanctified, I can now act sanctified. Does this make sense? And guys, one of the best keys, when we transition from what we know to applying it to everyday life, one of the best things that God ever gave us was the gift of the Holy Spirit. The infilling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about that in chapter 5. But the Holy Spirit helps bring into our natural lives, it helps bring our natural lives to a place where it shows the glory of God. Our natural life displays the glory of God to those around us. How many of you know the Holy Spirit helps us to be God's witnesses in the earth, to our families, in our workplace, to our school, wherever you may find yourself? It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to be a godly witness. So, like I said in the first three chapters, we, we've, we've been gaining knowledge, but in the last half of the book, we begin applying that knowledge in the form of wisdom. And as I talked about week one, wisdom is the correct application of knowledge, right? So, we have been hearers of the word, now we choose to be doers of the word of God. We choose to allow what we've heard to come out and be on display to the world around us. So uh, the things that Paul tells us to do in these last four chapters, uh, how many of you know living this out in, 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 in the natural world is absolutely impossible for our natural man? I, did did, the, did the, our, our study last year through the Old Testament not prove that? Did your life before Christ not prove that? It's impossible for us to live that holy, righteous, sanctified life in, a, in and of our own strength. But through the word and then filling the Holy Spirit, we can live the life of Christ in a fallen world that's controlled by the enemy. So we're going to begin, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. You can also go to the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, if you want to just scan that QR code on the back of the chair in front of you, uh, it'll take you to it as well. And you can just follow along with the notes from there if you want to. But um, we want to begin there in verse 1. And in, a, in just a minute, I'm going to give you three points that I see Paul making in the first 16 verses or so of chapter 4. But let's just begin there in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 right quick. Read along with me. It says, I therefore, this is Paul, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Other versions that say, being in prison for the Lord's sake. I therefore, Paul, being in prison for the Lord's sake, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness. Some versions say meekness. With long suffering or patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, before I get to my points, I, I want to take a couple of minutes and I want to break down these first few verses. He tells us to walk worthy of the calling with, with which we were called. The Passion Translation says, Walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank given to you in your divine calling. I love the way that's worded. How many of you know, if you're in the body of Christ, you have been called to a high rank. It's been given to you through your divine calling. Now, it says to walk worthy of the calling. Now, the word walk, it, we know that, that walking is, is movement. So in, in this case, it would be we're, we're, 
what are we doing between chapter three and chapter four? We're moving between knowledge, between positional truth of who we are in Christ to that application in our everyday life. So that's what we're, that's what we're walking toward here. Does this make sense? This is, this is how we grow. This is us renewing our mind as we're moving forward. This is the walking that we're doing here. Positionally, we're seated with Christ, but right now in this physical world, hopefully we are walking. We are walking forward. We know that, we're, we know that what walking means in the natural, going from one place to another, but in the spirit realm, and what it's talking about here, walking in the spirit is walking from a place of immaturity to a place of maturity in him. Walking in the natural is done step by step, right? And so I present to you that walking in the spirit is also done step by step. We grow. So quickly, I want to give you, I'm going to give you nine things real quick before I get to my three points. I'm going to real quickly give you nine areas of the Christian walk. The Bible explicitly calls this part of the Christian walk in the New Testament. And, and because they're referring to our walk, remember this is talking, this is referring to the application of our knowledge of the Word of God in our lives. So here's nine areas we see in the New Testament. Firstly, it refers to our walk in the Word of God. John 3, 3 tells us to walk in the truth, right? Secondly, it refers to our walk in the Holy Spirit. And Galatians and Romans tell us to walk, uh, to walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Then there's our walk in faith. 2 Corinthians, he tells us to walk by faith and not by what? Not by sight. Then he says, it talks about our love walk with the Lord because Ephesians chapter 5, which we'll get into in probably about two weeks, tells us, commands us to walk in love, right? Uh, then talks about our walk in the newness of life. This is the outward display of our changed life. When we receive Jesus, we surrender to his lordship. Something should change, guys. It should become more and more obvious every day in our outward life, in our natural life. Um, Number six, our walk, um, is that where I'm on? Yes, that's what I'm on. Our walk of integrity before the world. Romans 13 tells us to walk honestly. Guys, the follower of Jesus should be full of honesty and integrity. We should be the most dependable people in the whole world. And if you know, because a lot of people hadn't seen that, there's been a lot of hurt. A lot of people, there's people out there who don't trust the church because they haven't always seen this from folks in the body of Christ, right? Um, talks about number seven, our walk producing fruit. God tells us, Jesus told us that our life, he wants our life to produce fruit. And not just fruit. He said, he wants you to produce much good fruit. There should be lots of good stuff coming out of us as followers of Jesus. Uh, number eight talks about our walk in our calling. And it's what we, just, what we just talked about. It says to walk worthy of your calling. And then number nine talks about our walk before the world. Colossians 4, 5 says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. How many of you know it's very important how we walk in the world? So back to, uh, back, back to Ephesians 4. It, it, it talks to us and tells us to walk worthy of our calling. And how does it say to do so? It says, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, Lowliness and gentleness, like I said a few minutes ago, other versions say meekness. We talked about this week one. Meek does not mean weak, right? Jesus was meek. He was in no way weak, right? But it also doesn't mean that you, you think you're all that in a box of chocolates, right? It's not that at all. Really being meek means being teachable. 
When we, actually, that's why the Bible says, James says, receive with meekness the engrafted word of God. Guys, if you're not teachable, what good does it do to get into the word of God? None. We can't ever allow ourselves to get to the place where we think we know it all. Uh, and we, we've, all, we've all known that person in our life. We may have been there at, the, at some point in our life. When we think we know it all, we've already proven our ignorance. Have we not? When we won't receive what anybody else has to say, <laughs> we've already proven how much we know. Right? And how do you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Right? Right? So it says to walk worthy of your calling with meekness, with lowliness and gentleness. And then it says with long suffering with one another in love. How many of you know we're called to be patient? How many of you just struggle with that one? I do sometimes. Some of us struggle more than others. We, but guys, I, I was thinking about this too. How many of you guys realize that many times patience and faith go hand in hand? We have got to learn to be patient. And then in verse 3, it tells us, it says, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, have mercy. Help us all. This is huge, and we'll talk more about it later on. But many believers think the church should be in perfect unity in the earth. Guys, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen until eternity. We should be in perfect agreement and unity in, in everything and every doctrine and whatever else. Not going to happen. It will happen one day. And it won't be our doing. It'll be his. <laughs> but it's not going to happen here. Okay? But in the meantime, we are called to walk in harmony and in unity within the body. And as the church, our mission in the earth today is the Great Commission, Right? And how many of you know that we can link arms and we can fulfill the Great Commission together and lead people to Jesus without being in agreement on some of the non-essentials uh, of doctrine? And how many of you know that's okay? It's all right. But it says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. The word that is translated from the Greek that's translated endeavor here means to work hard and be diligent. I think the church could work a lot harder and be a lot more diligent in working toward the unity uh, of the saints. Amen? We are to work hard at it. We are from all different backgrounds and walks of life, but we have been given the Holy Spirit. And all the promises, we can do it. So let me give you three things as we continue on in chapter 4, three things that I see Paul speaking here. Number one. First thing he wants to mention here as we're making this transition, he wants you to know that as the body of Christ in the world, we are one. And so I added that on the end. We should act like it. We need to begin to act like we're actually one. The next six verses that we're going to read tell us what we as the body of Christ have in common. And guys, when I say as the body of Christ, I'm not talking about those of us seated in this room and watching online. I'm talking about everybody in the world, whatever they want to call themselves, whatever denominational label, whatever they want to call themselves that have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. If that's them, we're part of that body and we're one. 
And so that's what the next six verses, they talk about what we have in common. And, and it's, it's funny in the next few verses because in verse 4 as he talks about this, verse 4 uh, talks about, refers to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 refers to Jesus. And verse 6 refers to God the Father. It's very interesting to me that all three facets of the Godhead, all three of them help maintain the unity of the saints. They're all essential. Uh, they're all essential in this. They all play a role in unifying the body. The Holy Spirit brings us together, makes us one. Jesus unifies us in one faith. And God the Father, he is, he is our source. He is our all in all. And then verse 7 goes on to tell us what we have as individuals. So the next, next six verses talk about what we are as one, what we have in common as one. But verse 7 goes on to talk about us as individuals. And guys, I am so thankful to be part of the body of Christ. I'm also very thankful that when I became part of the body of Christ, God did not take away my individuality, right? It's, 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 awesome. it's really awesome because I recognize that the Lord loves you as much as he loves me. But how do you know that he rewards us individually according to our works, right? He still fully recognizes us as individuals even though we're one. Uh, okay, continuing to verse 4, Ephesians 4, 4, it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. See the word one in there quite a few times. There is one body, and that body is the body of Christ. It is the church. When you surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, the Holy Spirit grafted you into that body. There may be many local churches in the world, but we are, there is only one universal church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And he says, we also have one hope of our calling. We talked about the hope of our calling weeks back. One day, guys, as Pastor Sean said a while ago, we're going to be in eternity all together as one with the Lord and we are going to be completely and totally redeemed and sanctified, spirit, soul, and even body. And it says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who is our one Lord? It's Jesus. He earned that position <laughs> by willingly giving his life at Calvary, right? It was his death, burial, and resurrection. He was promoted by the Father. He was given the name above all names, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our one Lord. And through him, we have one faith that makes us members of his one body. And through this, it says we partake in one baptism. Guys, this is not water baptism, by the way. This is the newness of life. This is being born again. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This isn't talking about water baptism. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. And then verse 6 says that we were united by one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, there are world religions out there that have many gods. What do what the, the Hindus have? Isn't it like 33 million, I think, gods the Hindus have? Bro, that takes a cake. I don't know how you keep up, right? But our God is one. And this is very, very important 
so much so that the Jews, they, they still recognize this every day. They, they actually recite Deuteronomy chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. Do you know, Shauna? It's called the Shema. We had to learn that back years ago when we were in ministry school. We actually, before Dr. Weiss's class, we had to, every class had to open with a student body singing in Hebrew the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to invite Shauna to come up and do that right quick. (laughs) I'm not going to sing it either. But it says, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. They still quote that today. We serve one God. The one true Lord, the one true God who made Jesus Lord and Savior, he is above all. All majesty and honor and power and dominion and praise is his forevermore. And every knee will bow. As creator, it says the Father is through all. He is part of all creation, whether heavenly, earthly, spiritual, natural. Even the sinner was created by God and will one day admit that. And lastly, it says God is in you all. God is above all. He is through all. Believer and unbeliever alike. Guys, he is only in those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. As churches that are beginning out there that are beginning to teach a false doctrine. And they're beginning to say that in the end, everyone will be saved. What do you need to be saved for then? It's not true, guys. The Father is only, can only be in those who have surrendered their knee to his Son. All right, so number one, first thing I see Paul saying here is the body of Christ in the world, we are one. Number two, every individual member of the body of Christ has been given gifts and callings to step into. Every member of the body of Christ. Anybody here part of the body of Christ? You have gifts and callings. And guys, I'll just be frank, God expects you to step into them. It's what you were created for. It's your purpose. So now we've come, we've talked about what we have in common as one in the body of Christ. Now we're looking at each of us individually, as individual believers. So verse 7, he says, but to each of you, because remember he's talking about the whole, he now says, but to each of you, I'm sorry, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, I love that how verse 7 begins. Uh, each of us were given grace. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for grace. We already know that, but here's the thing. The grace he's referring to here is a little different. He's return, referring to the grace of your calling, of what you've been called to do, your purpose in the earth. And all, all, guys, all of the callings, all of the offices of ministry, as they're all wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus was all of them. To even the five-fold ministry gifts, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. How many of you know? They're all one. They're Jesus. He was all of them. And we each make up the body of Christ. There are other callings and giftings as well. We'll talk about in a few minutes. Other offices. 
They're all wrapped up in Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We represent different aspects and facets of Jesus and his ministry. Each person's calling is a gift from God. You will never be happy. You will never be satisfied until you discover the calling and the gift that God has placed within you. You can't try and accomplish somebody else's calling. We love to look at it and go, oh, I love, man, that's awesome what they're doing. I want to do that. I want to be that. I want to. Don't try to do what somebody else is doing. You'll never be happy. All you'll end up is frustrated because it's not what you were called to do. You play your part and let them play their part. Then you'll truly be satisfied. Other things may look more attractive. <laughs> You're going to end up frustrated and irritated. Verse 7 introduces, starts introducing us to different offices. And, and at the beginning, it, it kind of goes into verse 11 and begins to talk about the fivefold ministry offices we'll talk about in a minute. Like I said, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, pastor, and teacher. But there are, these are offices, those five, what we call the fivefold ministry, are offices of those who God's called to instruct his body. Not everybody's called to those things, right? <laughs> Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> if you're not called to it, you don't want it. Trust me. Trust me. Now, these are not the only offices found in the Word of God. There's seven more that are mentioned in, in Romans chapter 12. And we'll talk about those. There's 12 altogether found in the New Testament, and they apply to every member of the body of Christ. Regardless of whether you ever step into a pulpit and speak or not, or whatever it may be. Now, we talked about chapter 1, in chapter 1, how, what was, what was the office that Paul was functioning in? The apostle, right. Paul's an apostle. And so in Romans chapter 12, he says, I speak through the grace given to me. The grace that he was speaking of was his calling as an apostle. He was speaking through the grace of his apostolic gifting. But in the next verse... He says that each of us have an office, but it's not the same office. And then two verses later, he says, uh, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to each. We've all been given different grace. We all have a ministry calling, just like Paul, just like Peter and James and John and all the apostles. We all have a ministry calling. And then a couple verses later, Romans 12, 8, he mentions the other seven offices found in the body of Christ. And I do want to mention those real quick before we get on to the, uh, get on to the last point. So I want to show you some uh, ministry offices listed there in Romans chapter 12. And I'm just going to hit them real quickly with you. Uh, firstly, he mentions prophecy. Now, you would think this would be the same. Uh, some people think this is the same as the calling or the office of a prophet. Well, a prophet prophesies, Right? But just because somebody prophesies does not mean they're a prophet, okay? So this is not referring to the office of a prophet. It's just talking about a gift of prophecy, okay? Um, next one is, is ministry. Other versions say serving. In the church, this would be like what um, uh, many people would consider like, um, we don't generally use like the word deacon in the non-denominational church, but if you're from a denominational church, that might be kind of what you think of. Somebody who's, who's called to serve, they, they're, they're faithful, and, and it's not usually a, a pulpit ministry for them, but they, they do so not for recognition. They do so because it's just in them to serve and to be faithful. Uh, the next one he mentions is the teacher. Now, somebody who is in one of the fivefold ministry gifts, 
they probably, hopefully, walk in the gifting of a teacher. That's generally kind of necessary if you're going to lead the body of Christ, right? Um, but a teacher is not necessarily a pastor or an apostle or, or anything else like that, right? They, they just have this desire and this gifting within them to sh- instruct and to speak. Uh, then he mentions the exhorter. Other versions say, uh, say encourager. And this person may not necessarily be gifted in teaching, uh, but they've got this, they've just got this gift one-on-one that, that, to just encourage and connect with people and, and to inspire believers to just follow the Lord more closely. They're also, a lot of times, they're really good at, at connecting with people, encouraging them, and bringing them to a place of receiving Jesus as their Lord. And it, it, it's just, many times they're not as good with a big crowd. They're better in a smaller one-on-one type of, type of encounter. Uh, The next one he mentions uh, calling is that of the giver. Now, how many of you know, we are all called to be a giver and a good steward of what God has entrusted to us, all of us. However, there are some people that have been called to be a giver. This is the calling on their life. And and it it, it stirs them. It's what what moves their heart. And and they don't care about being being recognized and, and noticed. Uh, These people are usually very blessed because they've been obedient to that calling and they help fund uh, the the body of Christ, help fund the the spread of the gospel. Uh, There's two more. He he mentions the the ruler. Other versions say leader. And and a lot of times this is not necessarily a pulpit um, ministry either, even though those in fivefold ministry generally will have walk in this gifting. Um, But this is maybe more what we consider like an elder or somebody like that who, uh, who leads people, and um, maybe somebody who walks in kind of a pastoral care uh, type role. And uh, many times, general, generally, they, they like, to, like to lead, and, and, sometimes, and sometimes they do like to teach, but they work in cooperation with and in support of the fivefold ministry gifts. And then the last one that he mentions there in Romans is mercy. And some versions say compassion, some versions say kindness. And how many of you know, we, we're all called to walk in those areas, in, in, in mercy and compassion and kindness. But again, this is a person who has this gifting and they can almost feel the pain and the hurt in others. And it moves them. And, and a lot of times these folks, they're, they, 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 love to, they love to do hospital visits and visit those in hospice. And a lot of times they love to work in prison ministries and different things for, for people who are, who, are kind of, who are down and out. Because they can feel that person's hurt within them. And they want to be there to minister to them. It's a mercy gift. So here's the deal, guys. We all have one or more of these represented our lives as believers. They're within us. And when you respond to Jesus, when you say yes to him and bow to his lordship, the Lord begins shining a light on these things within you that he created and he placed within you. And he wants you to step into them. The church, the needs of the church, of the body of Christ, are fulfilled by each one of us as we begin to step out in the calling that he's called us to. Does that make sense? So again, um, verses 7 and 8. But to, each one, uh, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And from here, he begins to trans, uh, transition into the five-fold ministry gifts I was talking about. And this is referring to those who are like in authority positions in the, in the body of Christ. 
And, and, but in verse 8, if you look at it, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Many, most believe here that he's referring, when he talks about when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. This was after the resurrection. That he was actually referring to those um, who had served the Lord uh, before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, uh, if you look at it, it says in, in the English Standard Version, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The New Living says, When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives. Uh, just after this, he goes on to refer to us as the saints. When, when he's talking about he gave gifts to his people. But before that, he's referring to the saints who lived before the resurrection of Jesus. Now, these folks had been faithful to God, as we read throughout the Old Testament, right? But, but they had not yet been redeemed because Jesus had not yet come and died, right? And so, uh, they're, they're kind of like, they're, they're kind of, we're kind of on their way to heaven, but we're in a holding pattern. You ever been in a holding pattern, a plane, and, and circling the city, and whatever else? You know, and, and so they needed Jesus to come. In, in, in the parable Jesus gives about Lazarus, he refers to this as Abraham's bosom is what he called it, right? Where the, where the saints who had gone before Jesus died were held until Jesus was resurrected. But guys, at that moment, everything changed. When he was resurrected... Uh, he takes this whole crowd with him when he ascended on high. And so they are our family now, and they're in heaven. You know, we have family in heaven. We have family on earth. And then it says he gave to, he, the gifts that he gave to men were for us and for our family here on earth. And then in verse 11, he goes into what we call the fivefold ministry gifts. But before we hit those last few verses, let's look at verses 9 and 10 right quick, um, which kind of goes back to the part where it talks about Jesus ascending. In verse 9, it says, now this he ascended. When it says he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one. Who's the one? Jesus, who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Now, as the Bible is very clear, it tells us that Jesus descended at his death. He descended to the lower parts of the earth. And guys, this would, this would be hell. Um, the Bible is very clear. The Bible says that Jesus, guys, Jesus had to suffer our punishment, which was physical and spiritual death. We, we read him experiencing physical death on the cross. The spiritual death was separation from the Father. For the first time ever, he separated from the Father. But death could not hold him, right? He wasn't under the curse. And so the Bible tells us that he paid the price, he defeated the enemy. He broke the curses on mankind. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and he rose. How do you know that was a bad day for Satan? Brother thought he had him. <laughs> and a moment later, the tables were turned. And Jesus just took everything from the enemy and said, I'm gone. And he headed out and took, and, and took all the saints of old with him. Verse 10, it says, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Why did Jesus ascend to heaven? That he might complete, that he might fulfill all things. The mission, the plan of God. The plan of redemption was not complete until Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. He sat down, why? Because he's done. It's complete. Mission accomplished, right? And that is where he remains, 
until the day of his return, the beginning of the millennial reign, right? They mention in Hebrews chapter 1 when it says he will make the enemies his footstool. Guys, the plan of redemption is complete. All that's left now is the final reinforcement of that victory when Satan is and his cohorts are thrown into the pit. Verses 11 and 12 Moving on, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It says, he himself gave. Who is he? Jesus. This is not the Father, guys. This is Jesus. He himself. First um, Corinthians chapter 12 mentions this as well. It is Jesus who gives the gifts to the church. As long as we live... These gifts will be with us as long as we live the five-fold ministry gifts will be with us because he gave them to the church. So as long as the church exists in the earth, these gifts will be working. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to break down the five-fold ministry gifts, but um, I do want to look at the last two for, for just a minute. And you'll notice that each office listed in verse 11, uh, there's a comma after them except for the last two. Look at it. Actually, let me read it from the Lexham English Bible. It says, He himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. As the literal translation here, when it says pastors and teachers, it actually is translated from the Greek, pastor-teacher. And a few versions actually do reflect that, if you, if you search through. I, I did some looking. Many believe that pastor and teacher, or Pastor, teacher, and this fivefold ministry gift are actually one. Because one version, I can't, I can't remember actually which one it was. I didn't write it down. But one version actually says pastors who are teachers. It, it takes pastor and teacher, and it says pastors who are teachers. So, but we do know that there is a separate office of a teacher. We just talked about teachers a few minutes ago, right? Now, you can be a teacher without being a pastor, but you can't really be a pastor without being a teacher. That's what you're called to do. You're called, called, called to teach and to instruct and to lead. Pastor is the title, teacher is the function. If a person's called to be a pastor, they should expect by faith to operate in the gift of a teacher. So he gave us to apostles, he gave us prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then verse 12, it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man talking about the body of Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These ministry gifts, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the, the pastor, teacher, they were given by Jesus for the equipping of us as the saints. Guys, people in the five-fold ministry were not called to do the ministry for us. You recognize that? People say, well, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not good at sharing my faith. My, my pastor is the one that's called to, to lead my next-door neighbor to Jesus. Wrong! That's not true. They're called to help instruct you and equip you so that you can lead your own neighbor to Jesus. Right? Well, my pastor will pray for that sick person at work. I'll ask him to pray when I get there. No! Pastors equipped you to pray for that person at work who's sick or down and out or grieving or mourning or whatever it may be. Right? They were given to teach us how to do the work. It's not any prophet or evangelist or apostle or prophet's job to come to your house and witness to your neighbor. 
These ministry gifts were appointed and anointed by Jesus. And he appointed and anointed the five-fold ministry gifts to be an authority over our lives. And as we submit to them and we humble ourselves under these, our own personal revelation during our time with the Lord will increase. The Bible says that these in the fivefold ministry were appointed for your edifying and your perfecting so that as you grow, you can win others to Jesus and do the work of ministry. And verse 13 tells us that these ministry offices will be in place until, it says, we have all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These gifts will not dissipate as long as we are here on earth. As a body of Christ, we are being perfected and growing more and more mature. Why do we need maturity? So that we'll be most effective in fulfilling our purpose for him. But also, look at verse 14. It says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, caring about every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. We need to talk about that for a minute. So as a body of Christ in the world, we are called to be one. Every individual member of the body of Christ has been given gifts and callings to step into. Number three, God has called us to, somebody say, grow up. Grow up into maturity. The Greek word, if you look at this verse here, let's go back to verse 14. In verse 14, it says the the word children. The word children is literally translated one who cannot speak. One who's so young, they can't speak. And so this would be a very young believer. Some people like to say like a baby Christian. Not really effective or capable at communicating the gospel. uh, Kind of like, like a, like a, like a ship without a rudder or a sail, being, being tossed around by the waves and the wind. Does this make sense? You know, I, I was thinking about, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about ships. I, I think I shared earlier in the year about Sean and I being on a cruise on our 20th anniversary. And, and if you've ever been on a big ship, they generally today have stabilizers. So they don't move much, even if the seas get rocky. I remember waking up, I'm a side sleeper, and waking up, and I, man, I was rocking. I was like, what in the world? And I walk out on the balcony and look down, and it was like something out of the movies. It was slow mo- It looked like it was slow motion, but it wasn't because the waves were so big. I looked down, waves coming right up at me. I was like, whoa, I had to go lay down. But those, I couldn't imagine what it would have been out like without those stabilizers. You know what I'm saying? Guys, we have stabilizers. We have a stabilizer. Because, see, without stability in your life, you're always at the mercy of the circumstances, right? The circumstances will toss you to and fro. That's why so many Christians live this up and down life, up and down, up and down. I'm on a high today and a low tomorrow, up and down, up and down. You always wonder when that person, oh, I wonder how they're doing today. Oh, I'm doing great. And you're like, awesome. The next day it's like, oh, I'm doing terrible. It's like, oh, goodness. Because being tossed around, instability, walking in immaturity. Guys, we've all been there. We all probably have a certain amount of immaturity in our life that the Lord's still working out in us. People say, oh, the world looks so bad. What are we going to do? You're just glued to the news and all this. You're getting tossed around to and fro like a ship without a rudder or sail. But this man, I, God, man of God, I respect, he was just caught in sin. I'm never going trust to trust the church again. But you're being tossed to and fro. Your trust was in the wrong person. 
I prayed and prayed, and the person I prayed for, uh, my prayer wasn't answered. They died. God must not be the healer today. It's a lack of maturity. Being tossed to and fro, to and fro. This prophet, I said, uh, I respect. He said something, and it didn't happen in my life. So those words must not be for today. It's a lack of maturity. Being tossed to and fro. Well, I, I've been giving and giving, but, and, and, but I'm still broke, and I'm still struggling for everything, and, and that promise not, must not be for today. Being tossed to and fro. Instability. Lack of maturity. Guys, the Word of God produces stability in our lives so that despite the circumstances, we still stand. We maintain course. It doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't mean things aren't tough. Doesn't mean when a man or woman of God you respect falls, you're not disappointed and even hurt inside. But you don't lose hope and fall from the faith. You don't disregard the whole church and everything after that. You were putting your faith in the wrong person. Right? If circumstances allow you to fear and lose hope, then you need to check your foundation. It's got some cracks in it. You need to call the Olshan man and get it sealed up. You need to get in the Word of God, right? From the Lexham English Bible, Isaiah 33, 5 and 6 says, Yahweh is exalted. He dwells on high. He fills Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the security of your times. An abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Guys, he is the security of your life. He's the security of this day and age in which you're living in. He is your salvation, your wisdom, and your knowledge, and your hope. I was thinking, why, why as immature believers sometimes, why can we be so gullible, tossed to and fro? But I was thinking of a baby. What does a baby do when you hand them something and they take it? What's the first thing they do? They put it in their stinking mouth. You give them a rat poison and they take it, you know, because they don't know. Anything that's around them, they get and they fill themselves up with it. And that's what immature believers do. We grab onto everything going on around us and we just fill ourselves up. We might have a little bit of word in us, but we got a lot of other stuff. And we find ourselves still immature, being tossed to and fro, not gaining immaturity. That's why Ephesians 4.14 says, Being tossed and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, the cunning, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Guys, we need discipleship so we can grow in maturity. The Greek word translated trickery of men, it, I found this interesting this week. Uh, it actually is the word cubia from the Greek. And it's where we get the word cube. In the ancient world, it was the word for dice. How many of you know they cast lots and they actually played gambling games back then? You could lose a lot of money because there were people who were trained and they knew how to cheat. And they knew how to load dice. And you could lose real quickly if you got caught up in that stuff. Well, a person who refuses, a Christian who refuses to grow up, a Christian who refuses to fill themselves up with the Word of God, and one who refuses to submit to authority is playing a dangerous game. It's a game you can't win. Instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you, what you're doing is you're participating in a game. You're willingly participating in a game with the enemy. And he cheats. And he's got the dice loaded. You don't have much of a chance. Many people want to do their own thing. 
We, and man, here in the U.S., we got professional church hoppers. They're good at it, man. There should be an Olympic sport in it. Because they would win. They go somewhere for a few weeks until somebody frustrates them or upsets them, and they jump on to the next place, right? It's not what the Word of God has called us to. We are called to be planted. That's immaturity. It's unhealthy. It's unscriptural. What the issue is, is you'll, you'll meet somebody who's been to 20 different churches, and they think they're more mature than every pastor, leader, elder they've ever met. We're going back to what we were talking about, thinking you're all that, not having any meekness, not being teachable, right? Not, not surrendered. These are the same people that when they get in trouble, they complain that the church isn't there for them. Guys, a church family doesn't connect with you. You connect with a church family, right? Commitment begins with each of us as individuals. It's a choice that we make. So if he doesn't want us to be children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, the tricking, trickery of men, and deceitful plotting, what does he want? Let's look at the last two verses. Verse 15, this is what he wants. He says, but speaking the truth in love, may you grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. He wants the baby to grow up. That one who could not speak, to grow up. And the words coming from his mouth being the truth in love. Coming forth from them. Speaking the truth is speaking the word of God. Speaking the word of God is really the greatest key that we've got in this natural life. It is the key to answer prayer and effective confession, even mastering the thoughts, your thought life. When you're full of the word of God, Colossians tells us that it comes out of you in two ways. In word and in what? And in deed. Speaking the word is important, but doing it in love is even more important. There are many people that speak the word of God, but they do so to tear others down, to bring them closer to the Lord. Guys, the word of God is a sword. Doesn't it say that? And it is not meant to be used against people. It's meant to be used against principalities and powers. When we use the word of God on others, it should be out of love to free them from their bondages, preserve them to care for them. And this is the process by which we are to grow and move into maturity. Jesus is our example. He is the goal of our spiritual maturity. Ephesians 5.23 says we are to grow up in all things, in all areas, into him, into Christ, who is the head of the church. Last verse, verse 16. From whom the whole body... Join and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So verse 15 told us that speaking the truth in love would cause us to begin to grow up and to mature. But verse 16 tells us that the edification or building up of the whole body of Christ is done in love. Have you know... Faith will not work without love. It's ineffective. Whether it's in an individual or, or, or the entire body of Christ. All of the promises and scriptures found in the word of God do no good whatsoever if we don't operate in love. For believers and unbelievers alike. Verse 16 says, the whole body of Christ is joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies. What are the joints? Well, guys, the joints are the five-fold ministry offices. 
and that we found in verse 11. They supply to different parts of the body what is needed. The ministry gifts make sure that the different members of the body are joined and knitted together. All of us as members of the body of Christ, all of us are like the bones of a body. you got to have a joint that joins those bones together, right? And it talks about that in, in Colossians 2. It talks about what joins together. It talks about joints and bands, ligaments and, tendon, and tendons. But guys, everything that it's talking about here in this last verse, it's all centered around love. What links you and I together in Christ, the joining bond that links, links us together as one in the body of Christ is love. We may come from different backgrounds. We may come from different walks of life. But love is what joins us together into one supernatural body. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. When one mourns, we all mourn. Right? When one needs help, we don't look the other direction. We join together and we grab them and we help them up. Right? We minister God's word to folks. We do it in love. We give them a firm foundation God's promise to stand on, and we speak the truth in love. Why? So that the body, as the body, we may all grow together in all areas in Christ who has the head. And it says, all this is done according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Who in here is a part? Every part does its share. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're a part. Each one of us, we're a part. Every part doing its share. This is where I talked about a few minutes ago. God has given us giftings and callings, and he expects us to step into them, just like as your kid grows up in your house. You're going to give them some chores and some things to do, right? You expect them to do their part. They're like, well, how much do I get? You get nothing. You're part of the family. You're a contributor. You're going to do your part, right? So go mow the stinking lawn, right? <laughs> in the same way. We're part of the family of God, and we have been given specifically giftings and callings. It says, the effective working by which every part does its share. That's each and every person that has ever said yes to Jesus. The effective working is the measure of faith acted on by each individual in the body. We must each do our part in cooperation with those that the Lord has placed in authority over us so we can fulfill the ministry of God that he's called us to. As each part, as each part of us, each one of us ministers out of our callings and our giftings, the body builds itself, as it said, toward the fullness of the stature of Christ. We grow in maturity. Good stuff? As a body of Christ, we are one. Each individual part of the body has been given giftings and callings that God expects us to step into. And God has called us to grow up and to walk in maturity. That is the first step, the first thing Paul says as far as wisdom and applying the truth of who we are in Christ to our everyday life. We should be able to look at this and we should be able to see areas where, that we need to shore up in our own lives as we're walking this out every day. Amen? Let me invite the worship team to come up. Y'all stand up on your feet with me this morning as we, as we conclude. We'll continue on and maybe finish chapter 4 next week. We'll see. And it gets on into other stuff. It gets on into our relationships with fellow man and gets into 
marriage and children and all kinds of different things. Paul starts touching on a little bit of everything as we move along. Talks about the whole armor of God and all kinds of stuff. It's good. But let's bow our heads for just a moment. Let's just bow our heads across this place. Guys, I talk about the body of Christ being one. When I talk about us being knit together, I talk about us all being part of the body. That only applies if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. You say, well, well, I don't know if I have. It's real simple. The Bible lays it out for us. We know that if we have sinned, it's called, called separation between us and the Father. He's our source. He's our hope. He's our love. We're not meant to be separated from him. He designed you a purpose, but you can't accomplish it separated from him. And it's our sin. It's our sin that's the issue. And I hope you are meek enough to admit that we have all sinned and fallen short of the God we all need to repent and we all need to surrender to the lordship of Jesus and when you do that you repent and you ask Jesus to be lord of your life you turn from your old ways he makes all things new and yes you can be assured that on the day you die first face you'll see is Jesus and you will be in heaven but let me tell you the day you say yes to Jesus here on earth that's really the day of change that's the day when everything changes he's with you every moment after that he walks with you he encourages you he builds you up he strengthens you he's your hope and your joy and your salvation you can have joy in the midst of unspeakable storms. Everything changes when you say yes to Jesus. Now, if you've never done so, I give you that opportunity right now. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, or maybe you have before, I don't know, but you look right now, you introspectively look at your own heart and you go, you know what, I'm not surrendered to Jesus. I'm living for myself. Then I invite you to pray this prayer even if you've done it before. Whether you're here in person or watching online, pray this prayer. Mean it with all your heart and everything changes. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus because I recognize that without him, I am lost and alone in my sin. I am utterly bankrupt. I'm lost in my sin and shame. But because of Jesus, I look to hope. I look to him as my hope. Lord, I repent for living my life in a way that displeases you. I turn from my sin and I lay it at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, I ask you to be Lord of my life. I believe that you are the son of God, that you came to this earth, that you lived the perfect life, and then you laid it down for me. You gave your life for me. 
but death could not hold you. After three days, you rose and you ascended on high and I choose to be with you. Jesus, be my Lord and be my Savior. I'll follow you all the days of my life. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything you've called me to be. I'll follow you to the end. No turning back. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.